0: Arsenal hosting Leicester, Manchester City against Tottenham. The margins between England's four best teams were so thin, the referees had to intervene. Along the way, we did get something we've rarely seen all season, the Premier League living up to the hype. Elsewhere, Liverpool and Chelsea broke out, Manchester United broke down, and Everton broke Valentine's hearts. Welcome everybody to this edition of the World Soccer Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Farley. Thank you very much for joining us. Let's keep this intro as short as possible, though, guys. I want to welcome in my hosts, Lawrence McKenna and Krishner, because we have two amazing matches to talk about this weekend. Leicester City, undone after losing Danny Simpson to a second yellow card, lose at the Emirates 2-1, while Tottenham gets a late goal from Christian Eriksen to take a 2-1 win at the Etihad and Manchester. Lawrence, welcome back to the show. I want to know what your thoughts were on those two
2: huge Sunday matchups. Richard, they were title-defining... They were six-pointers. Uh, um, they were games. February, I think. I think it's still February, Lawrence. No, good point, yeah. We probably shouldn't get too far ahead of ourselves, should we? Yeah, chronology
0: um, is still a thing.
2: Chronology is still a thing, especially when the Champions League is coming back. Um, I'm going to go down the route of uh, pressure and tactics within the Premier League. I really enjoyed uh, the way that Spurs were so almost openly let to pressure Man City. And then when Man City sort of turned to them and said, oh, wait a, wait a minute, you can't always pressure us. Okay, we'll concede a goal. Mm -hmm. Um, And then when it it went the other way, we sort of... uh, I'm still fascinated with how the analysis with Arsenal generally centres around uh, possession and how little they actually need possession as a side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why it played out so well against Leicester in the end. Because people sort of think, well, you know, it'll play into Leicester's hands, Arsenal-like possession, etc. But actually, I think... Wenger's so much more savvy than that, and that's why it took another twist this weekend.
0: Yeah, very interesting. We're going to talk about Arsenal-Leicester City in the first segment of the show. Devote the whole second segment to Manchester City and Tottenham, but Kartik, before we get there, just your thoughts on the two big matches on Sunday.
1: Yeah, I think matches, I think but certainly Leicester can feel a little bit hard done by the officiating. There's some controversy over the Vardy penalty, although I do think it was a foul. Uh, now, did Vardy ham it up a little bit? Yes, uh, but I think Leicester can feel hard done by the officiating. Manchester City versus Spurs, controversy about the officiating, but Spurs were the better team. They are the better team. They run out to serve three-point winners.
0: Yeah, the Vardy penalty discussion, I'm already rearing that a little bit, but we, we have to talk about it. It was an important moment. It was at least the first important moment in that match. But before even getting into these matches, i got to say, I've been as down on the Premier League as anybody that I know. I seem to be taking shots at the league throughout the this whole season. Even during my intro, right. I took a shot at the league. But these two games were really excellent games this weekend. Four excellent performances by four teams that, to me, seem to distinguish themselves as the four best teams in the league, as if we didn't know that coming into the weekend. But I was extremely happy to wake up early for these games, and uh that was no small feat given the time zone that I'm in. It was a 3.50 wake-up for Arsenal-Leicester, but it was definitely worth it. So let's talk about that game first, gentlemen. Uh, Jamie Vardy, converted penalty kick just before halftime, gave Leicester a 1-0 lead. Danny Simpson gets two quick yellow cards in the second half, leaving Leicester to play most of the second stanza with 10 men. Theo Walcott, Danny Welbeck score Arsenal with a 2-1 victory. Lawrence, I'll go to you first. Just your thoughts on... Well, let us let me just ask the obvious question. How do you think this game would have played out if Danny Simpson hadn't gotten his second yellow card?
2: Good question, actually. Um, I think, obviously, it would have, it would have played more into Leicester's structure, which would have allowed them to sit back a little bit more on Arsenal. But I still think that would have meant that Arsenal would have at least got one goal because the way that Giroud was playing in this game, I think it was probably one of his better games he, in the season. He was great. He was great. Yeah, exactly. And I think that really allowed them to apply the pressure. So even if Danny Simpson was on the pitch, I think that the way that they were using Giroud and the shape of the front line was really critical to the way that Arsenal were attacking. Um, and the point would be that most Leicester fans, I think, were actually quite happy with how long they held up against Arsenal. Um, and so it, 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 for me, it was less about the, the sending off and more about how Leicester were playing the game. What I do wonder is, and um, let me just look back on the minute that Arsenal scored their goal. I think it was 94 90,
0: yeah. oh, 70th minute for Walcott, 94th minute.
2: for Welbeck. And, and by that point I think that Ranieri probably tactically would have changed things differently had he had 11 men on the pitch mm. so that Arsenal wouldn't have been able to get into this position mm-hmm. so I think it would have played out very differently but so the, I still think Arsenal would have scored one the
0: changes Ranieri had to make he had to sacrifice Riyad exactly. Mahrez to bring on Marcin Wesoluski to play a right back and then shortly after that he sacrificed Shinji Okazaki to bring on Damari Gray so that he would have two wingers Gray and Albrighton. Kartik, before we go to uh, Jamie Vardy's penalty the penalty that he Drew, and then converted. I want to talk about the two Arsenal goals. To me, they were just supremely well-executed goals. The header down that Giroud laid off for Walcott for the equalizer was just a great play on Giroud's part. And then the second goal, although you definitely have to blame Weslewski for uh, for uh the foul that gave them the opportunity, just a sublime ball from Metsut Ozil right into that space in front of Casper Schmeichel, and then the flick on for Danny Welbeck for the goal. Just two two extremely well-executed goals.
1: Yeah, I think obviously you can blame Wetzelewski for the for the foul, but uh, the reality is uh, Welbeck lost his mark, and I know we've seen that time and time again in circumstances where a player, uh, where, where there's a late winner like that on a set piece, but um, two really well-executed goals for Arsenal, good football, Pretty play, resilient play from the Gooners today. Uh, I I think the officiating does weigh into how this result went. I I do think Leicester uh, deserved at least a draw in this match. But uh, give Arsenal credit. They stood up. They were counted. Their backs were against the wall. They were down 1-0 at halftime. Same scoreline as Manchester City last week. What was Manchester City's response? Just to take the afternoon off after that. Uh, Whereas Arsenal's response was to fight, to draw, uh, uh, to, to get Leicester to lose their composure, to draw... Uh, that second yellow on Simpson, although I, I think both fouls, I think both were kind of harsh as bookable offenses, but the resiliency of Arsenal was to be admired today. me.
0: Hmm. Let's talk about those fouls, and then we'll talk about the Vardy penalty a little bit more. Lawrence, do you agree with both of the yellow
2: cards that Danny Simpson was given? I honestly haven't seen enough replays to be able to uh, assess that well enough, I think. it's um, <laughs> a really reasonable answer. right? Aren't we supposed to have strong opinions about everything on this show? I think we're supposed to have well-assessed opinions, but well, for me, there were more critical points in the weekend um, mm. and red cards and yellow cards in games. I know that I, I, I didn't have enough time to go back and watch over and over again those things. Um, and uh, for me, I think there were more critical points in the game than the setting off. Obviously, what I'm saying is, I actually think that Arsenal would have pressed through in the end. Um, mm. And I think that overall, as much as it took them a while, I, there are so many truisms that you can relate about both sides this season. And I think for Arsenal, one of the truisms is sometimes it takes them a while to break teams down and work it out. But very often we just revert to well. that But, you know, that came from the possession they had, etc. And if you look at the statistics, then, yeah, you know, Arsenal had 70% of the possession. But actually, I think they moved very quickly. And it was that movement and the way that, like you say, they use Giroud uh, t- to move around that Leicester back line, which made the difference in the game. So for me, the, sendings off were, were, the sending off was less critical.
0: I completely agree with you I, we can talk about this when we get to Everton but one thing that I that dawned on me was I was watching the Everton game just watching the Everton players take three four touches as they're trying to break down a West Brom team that defended kind of like Leicester did with 10 men even though West Brom had 11 and the speed with which Arsenal was moving the ball moving without the ball knowing where their players were going to be really making it difficult for Leicester and, uh, actually now that I think about it kind of surprising that Leicester was able to hold out for so long uh, but Kartik let's go ahead and talk about the Jamie Vardy situation now for people that missed it Jamie Vardy approaching the penalty area from the right flank one-on-one with Monreal with the outside of his right foot he plays the ball towards the goal line inside of the penalty area Nacho Monreal had uh, jabbed out towards him with his left foot missed the ball Vardy kind of continued his run into Monreal lets himself get taken down very quickly point referee points to the spot Kartik to what extent do you agree it was the correct call
1: Oh, it was the correct call. I mean, obviously we've seen this before. We've seen Luis Suarez. We've seen other strikers do this where they drag their leg looking for a call. But if there's contact, you, it's, it's almost as if the contact is there and you're selling the, you're selling the referee. Is there some embellishment in it? Yes. But is it a foul? Yes. Yeah. Does it get called a foul outside the area? Yes. So why should an official ju- uh, judge of what is called uh, in the area differently than outside the area if we give penalty kicks? for fouls inside the area. Now, I happen to, I have been a long-term believer that the rule for penalties should be changed and incidental fouls like that should not be penalties in the area. They should be indirect free kicks. But as long as we have this set of rules, that's a penalty.
0: I didn't get here on NBC in the States, uh, Robbie Musto was definitely against the call. Kyle Martino was for the call during the halftime analysis. I didn't quite get Robbie Musto's, um, argument. I mean, basically, if you kind of, if you draw a line from where Vardy was running to where he would be running, it would go right through where Mon- Nacho Monreal put his leg. In other words, Monreal put his leg into his path. Now, if you take the alternate course and say, okay, well, Vardy was going to turn and go for the ball because there was a slight right turn, The leg is still in Vardy's path. There is just no way you can look at what Monreal did and, as incidental as it seemed, argue that he did anything but stick a leg into Jamie Vardy's path. And to me, that has to be a penalty. Lawrence?
2: Yes, so so it's almost... You're you're saying it's almost... uh, Because because that's also part of the way the Premier League has become. I know you're talking about the quality, but also the speed of play can sometimes confuse certain players into making mistakes. So like you say, as incidental as that seems it ultimately is actually a tactic yeah you're in, still impeding his progress you're you're yeah you're almost panicking the other side into making mistakes with their body in that way
0: absolutely that's that's a great way to put it you and like you're implying we have to give Jamie Vardy credit for being so tenacious so frantic that he essentially caused Nacho Monreal to reach out with his left leg not come close to the ball and and take down Jamie Vardy even if Jamie Vardy as you said might have intended to be doing that all along and not necessarily intending to get around the man so 2-1 was the result here last 30 minutes or so played without a man for Leicester let's talk about implications here quickly Kartik what what do you think that this does for both sides? What do you think it does for their chances in the title race?
1: Well, it certainly opens the title race up. I'm actually working on As we speak,
2: as we record this, going through every fixture and figuring out who wins the title, I'm not quite... I love that part of the season. It's the best bit when Kartik does that.
0: I I don't like it that he's doing it during the show, though. I mean, we're trying to record a show here, Kartik.
2: Oh, no, no, no. I'm not doing it
1: during the the show, but I I will resume it after. I'm only through about 32 rounds. I still got Leicester, I think, winning the title, but it's going to be close. And Spurs and Arsenal are both going to run them very close now. It opens that up. What I think it does psychologically is two things. One, for Arsenal, it it shows them that when they have the fight, when they push forward, they can get it done. The the doubters about Arsenal bottling it in big games, they now have some confidence that that's not always the case. For Leicester, you know what? This is the team that beat them 5-2 earlier in the season, and people thought that this game... Might be four one, maybe five five one. This would be a hiding. This would expose Lester. The reality is, they stay eleven v eleven. They pro- they at worst get a draw in this game. They know they played well. They know they played tenaciously. Ranieri was very proud of his team. He's giving them a week off now. Uh, they left it all on, on on the pitch. He knows that he was very emotional after the match. So uh, I think it. it it's funny because of course in the table it helps arsenal but i think it's one of those games that because of the way it was played it helps both teams mm-hmm. psychologically
0: lawrence how did the result change how you look at the race? if it changes it at all
2: you change it to be honest mm-hmm. um structure is still the same in the premier league i understand the the points difference between the two uh for me i guess the problem is you almost flip a coin on a lot of uh it's like an it's like the iowa caucus guys <laughs> you almost flip a coin on so many things as a cartic reference there for you um and so, you know, I'd love to know where Karthik's putting Liverpool's results come the end of the season. Um, you still have a fairly interesting run for Leicester. I think that's what we were saying is the fascinating side was we said Leicester's three critical games here. If they can get three points from these games, then they'll be grateful. Ultimately, they got six, which is still, you know, a great achievement. But the point would be now they're facing teams who are maybe even more desperate for the points than they're faced in these three. So how do you how do you work those out? Um, and I think I've said it time and time again, but I don't know if you guys get this feeling as well. When I come down to listen to podcasts, look back at the weekend's results, most of the time, I almost have a sense of deja vu because I almost go, oh, yeah, of course it worked out that way. <laughs> of course that was what happened. And you almost feel like there's a way of predicting that. But that's why I'm fascinated with where Kartik's going with that predictions of where everything's, you know, sort of going to end up. Because I think it's so difficult to 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 predict, but at the same time, it almost seems like the most obvious thing you could have.
0: Hmm. The one thing I want to revisit that we've harped upon on the last two shows is Lester's ability to win one-on-one battles and whether Arsenal could match them. And through the first half, I don't think that they did. I think particularly with N'Golo Conte, had a huge first half, tons of interceptions, tons of balls, one in the middle. And we saw, particularly on the goal where Conte beat Koscielny to that ball just inside Arsenal's half, then Vardy beat Montreal to draw the penalty Lester was winning those one-on-one battles. What impressed me about Arsenal, in addition to the versatility that they were able to bring off the bench with Walcott and Welbeck, is that in the opening ten minutes of the second half, they started winning those battles. And you can say Danny Simpson sending off was something that maybe doesn't happen every game. It clearly doesn't happen every game. Red cards are pretty rare, but Arsenal's ability to win one-on-one battles and draw those cards deserves some credit. It's not just incidental that Danny Simpson got those yellow cards. Arsenal had a part in that, and they deserve. Credit for winning the battles that put but them one thing ahead. I have
1: to say is that before Danny Simpson was sent off, every second ball Lester was winning. Every 50 50 it seemed like Lester was winning.
0: I think in the first half, but in the second, the beginning of the second half, Arsenal seemed to have some renewed en- renewed energy. I don't know if they were going to be able to keep that up. In fact. Based on the broader look at the season, I would bet that that was going to be just a out-of-halftime burst, and then Conte and Vardy and Mars would have served themselves over the second half. But I was impressed by Arsenal's ability to come out of the locker room a little bit more inspired and kind of rise to the occasion, because as you mentioned, they went down a goal into halftime just as City had the week before, and rather than cowering to the challenge, they came out and really started to try to win those one-on-one battles, at least put a little bit more effort into them. And I think, uh, as you said, Kartik, Arsenal deserves a lot of credit for that. That. Well, the round's other huge match, City and Spurs, gets the full treatment next segment, but there were eight other games this weekend. Starting on Saturday, when a late David De Gea own goal at the Stadium of Light allowed Sunderland to claim a key three points, beating Manchester United 2-1. That result allowed Southampton, now with five wins and six, to close within one point of fifth place after their 1-0 win at Swansea. Stoke City, seemingly in a free fall, Coming into this weekend's round, reverse course at Bournemouth, claiming a 3-1 win at Dean Court. Watford got two goals from Troy Deeney to continue Crystal Palace's 2016 woes, winning 2-1 at Selhurst Park. West Bromwich Albion was outshot 33-5 and only put one try on target, but it was enough to beat Everton 1-0 at Goodison. Norwich looks set to jump back into the win column with two early second-half goals, but West Ham woke up late to salvage a 2-2 at Carroll Road, And Saturday's last game, Newcastle made Chelsea their Valentines by gifting them three first-half goals, with the defending champions eventually claiming a 5-1 win. On Sunday, in addition to those two huge top-four battles, Liverpool unloaded on Aston Villa, getting six goals from six different players and a 6-0 win at Villa Park. The results leave the top four as we found it, albeit with a smaller margin at the top. Leicester comes through their terror run of fixtures with a two-point lead at the top of the table, with Tottenham and Arsenal close behind. Manchester City stays six points back, still six up on 5th place United. At the bottom, despite their dramatic loss, Villa is still a little worse off in terms of survival. On 16 points, they're still eight away from safety. 19th place Sunderland, however, is only one point from escaping the bottom three, while Newcastle's nightmare at Stamford Bridge leaves the Magpies in 18th place. When we come back, we're talking City Spurs. Did Tottenham win over their doubters? Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. Second segment of the show, we usually go through the rest of the top of the table here. and We'll go ahead and do that now. It's just in this weekend where the top four squared off against each other, we only have one more top of the table matchup. And just like the early game on Sunday at the Emirates, the nightcap at the Etihad. It lived up to the hype. Surprisingly so, Lawrence. Tottenham, 2-1 victory. Late goal by Christian Eriksen, settling a tie that was created by Caliche Inaccio's equaliser in the 74th minute. Just in general, Lawrence, your thoughts on this one?
2: Uh, Let's go down the route of uh, pressing with this one, as always, as we do with Spurs. Um, It it worked really effectively on Man City. Man City almost allowed it for a little while. That's the weird thing that I always think about City. And the same to some extent with Arsenal was... um, Sometimes they almost allow another team to enforce whatever it is they want on them. And then when they choose to up their game, then, you know, it almost looks too easy. Um, I was questioning at the point where Spurs got the penalty, whether they were going to be able to press for that or whether City were going to suddenly step it up like they did and uh, create more chances and sort of, I mean, it, t- towards the end of the game, it really looked like City could equalize to me. Hmm.
1: Um,
2: so it, it wasn't as if it was, you know, Spurs imposing themselves. Again, the pressing works. And pressing, we must remember, is not necessarily imposing yourself in the way that Man City might want to impose themselves.
0: Kartik, where should we start? Manchester City, how they dealt with Spurs' pressure, or should we jump I'm right all... in with the, the okay. penalty call?
1: Well, regarding the penalty call, I, I think poor Manuel Pellegrini, there are a lot of people who want him to stay in England, but the, the all of these calls, <laughs> the standard of officiating in the English game, I think, is going to drive Pellegrini back to the continent. He seems so frustrated. There have been so many. And and I, I always say, and Lawrence gives me a hard time about this, that these things tend to even out over the course of a season. But this might be one exception. Yeah, this Manchester City team this season might be one exception because there seem to have been, at least in the last six weeks, a disproportionate number of calls that have gone against them. So, Although some of those were in cup competitions, so maybe they don't all apply to the league race. But same officials, right? Same uh, FA officials English officials so, so. yeah I think he um, he's feeling very bad about it but uh, Spurs were, were good they were incisful, uh they, they were incisive going forward I really like the idea of starting sun in midfield I thought he had a very good shift played very very well and pochettino now has the right balance in the squad that he's able to bring guys off the bench. And, and shut shut up shop when he needs, or uh, stimulate counter-attacking goals when he needs to. There, there, he's got a plan B. He's got a plan C. We're going to talk mm. about some managers in the relegation fight that may not even have a plan A later. And it seems like Pochettino's got it all figured out. He's he's thought through just about every scenario.
0: Yeah, we alluded to Arsenal's options coming off the bench in their win, and how how impactful they were against Leicester. Obviously, you just have to look at the score sheet there. Pochettino has a rotation of players in midfield, particularly now that he's working somebody like Tom Carroll and he's got somebody like Ryan Mason in reserve if he ever needs to go to him. But a lot of options in that midfield. And as you alluded to, starting Sun today, when I think a lot of people maybe might have expected Eric Lamella to start, it just shows the options that he has to tactically match up with teams. But I want to go back to Lawrence's point regarding the pressing. And I think there's a very interesting point there about whether City is being imposed upon or whether they're letting teams impose upon them, and it's also something that Nipun and I talked a lot in the preview show. Whether the quality that Manchester City has in their midfield now was going to be able to alleviate the pressure.
2: That Could I also Spurs... ask you one thing yeah. about that, guys? Yeah, go ahead. I was having a conversation earlier this week, and I don't know if you know we're the guys to have this conversation, but I thought it was so fascinating to have uh, this, just the idea that, and then someone else agree with me. In England at the moment, there's a lot of analysis of players being. Lazy in inverted commas. And that sounds like a dangerous territory. It is. And I worry a little bit that it is related to xenophobia and race. I don't know whether you guys have the same analysis. Now, the problem is that you guys have English pundits in America as well. So maybe they bring some of their cultural bias over with them. You know, I mean, Gary Lindick is a great pundit and I love the FA Cup. But the point would be that you still need to have something of a cultural uh, foundation somewhere. I'm just wondering. Do people speak about Yaya Toure, Daniel Sturridge, Divock Origi, Benteke, Sanya, um, any number of black players as ever being lazy players in the States? Yeah,
1: the Tory, the Tory analysis, I think, is largely racist. I, I, I'll address that head on. Yeah. I've that for a long time. He's yeah. 32 going on 33. And if it were a accomplished Spanish player, uh, uh, Santi Cortola is uh, 31. Okay, well, maybe uh, if, if you can think of an accomplished Spanish player or accomplished Italian player or English Pilo. player of that age. Hilo
2: was dipping in yeah.
1: that, that yeah. day. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And, and Pirlo did about uh, probably less running.
0: <laughs> lazy than, Pirlo, uh, we haven't heard that.
1: said Tor- Torre. And we well, never we'll heard go lazy Go no, so to the, um, there, So there you go. I mean, I on, on the Yaya uh, Torre criticism specifically, I felt that for some time and I haven't wanted to address it. I haven't wanted to tweet it. And yeah. uh, thank you for bringing it up, Lawrence, because I, I I think you're right.
0: But Lawrence is even bringing up another layer. Uh, this goes beyond just what fan reactions are, because in any fan reaction, you're going to get that slice of people who are just kind of ignorant. Lawrence is saying that this is bleeding over into the mainstream coverage of the sport in the UK. Yeah. Are you sensing any of that over here, Kartik? Because I, I'm not sure I've actually seen... NBC or any other outlet, Fox, that covers the game over here, go there regarding those kind of stereotypes?
1: No, I, I don't think they have. And I have to say, uh, there are people who complain about American commentators. I complain about American commentators a lot also, but I, Kyle Martino, to me, makes some of the most, uh, most, uh, uh, most uh, uh, sharpest points about this league that anyone is making anywhere in the world when I, I check out the coverage from around the world. So, American pundits don't necessarily resort to those lazy stereotypes and that kind of cultural bias and they can also analyze soccer so that's a that that's a positive thing i don't think uh, our british pundits have gone to uh to, to 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 those uh uh points either lawrence i one thing i would say is that one of our most prominent pundits is robbie Urle, and he happens to uh, uh, black so he's not he's obviously not going to go there but we don't have any of the old boys uh, I don't want to get into specific names. but we don't have any of those usual suspects that you have in the UK press over here just yet uh, we I did mean, at one yeah. point but uh, they're now both working in Qatar the two I'm thinking of but uh, <laughs> don't, we, know who don't...
2: don't know who you mean <laughs> Richard sorry but we,
1: don't, but we don't have any of uh, those types yet here so it hasn't seeped into
2: our coverage hmm. great no lovely Andy
0: Okay. Let's go back to the game, gentlemen. It occurs to so, me we well, did.
2: I was going to make a wider oh, point on that. Sorry. Go ahead. The point would be that, it, uh, because Yaya Toure is such a face of the team, people therefore, um, almost use him as a, the personification of what the side represents. Um, yes. And that's that he can what you. he likes. Um, and, and I think that, you know, to some extent, I, you know, when I was analyzing it early on there, I, I sort of applied that same framework to the entire Man City team. Um, and so, I'm, you know, I, I'm just wondering where that takes them towards the end of the season and how a title push is shaped through that, because it's ve- like it's such a transitional um, identity for this side. If some of them are thinking, look, I want to, you know, I want to uh, push to another side. Uh, you know, I want to go somewhere else in Europe. Some people are thinking I want to play in a Pep Guardiola system. So I have to, uh, you know, exhibit certain qualities. And some people just want to win a title. So there must there's a lot of factors pulling them. Uh, from the outside as well as the inside. What I'm wondering is what it's like in Man City and what's going on there. Hmm.
0: I think that's very interesting. I think it's also very interesting that if you think <laughs> well, we some have of a that lot exists. Of fans.
2: Then... We have a lot of fans
1: that resort to the lazy stereotypes because they watch the UK press and they're saying Yaya Toure is the laziest player. He's a useless player. And, and, and then you, you get these uh, you get diff- a different analysis of Mangala than you would of, of another center back of Otamendi. So I, I think there is some of that even in in among supporters that there, there seems to be a, a quicker reaction. And we saw this with Liverpool. No offense, Lawrence. We saw this with Liverpool supporters towards Daniel Sturridge. I, I was offended by some of the reaction towards Sturridge. Oh, well, he's I'm ben Teke. he doesn't want to play. Am, yeah, yeah. Benteke
0: yeah, is a good one. Yeah, Tech is a great one. He doesn't, he
1: doesn't want to play. Really? Yeah. Daniel Sturridge doesn't want to play football. He keeps trying to fight back through all these injuries. He could have just retired by now and taken the money. Mm-hmm.
2: I think, exactly. Really? I, uh, I've it, been offended it, by it, what I've read the last couple of weeks about Sturridge. It happens a lot. And, and the same with D- Divokarigi is, uh, he just doesn't apply himself. No, he absolutely does. And uh, <laughs> it's the same with Ben Teffi. Right. It is, is, you know, oh, he's not willing to run. Or is the guy confused as to where his position is supposed to be? So instead of running like a headless chicken somewhere, he's actually confused as to where he's supposed to be on the pitch. And he, it's someone who's struggling to live up to all those things. But that doesn't fit the narrative of uh, a certain striker. And I understand that, you know, as a privileged white guy from wherever, maybe I'm not the guy to be championing that. But I, I still think it, it's sort of worth bringing up in the analysis, especially of City, um, against a side who previously... Uh, were, were thought to be sort of mentally weaker because they didn't always last the so the I, I don't want
1: to I didn't want to bring this up, uh, since we ta- just talked about that specific pundit that he in in Britain is now in Qatar, but he, he made, yeah, he made, he made that analysis. Well, gu- guys,
0: first. there are some people who listen to the show who might not know who we're talking about. We okay, might I'm talking, want about, to...
1: I'm talking specifically about Richard Keys oh, Richard my. Keys had John Cross on his, uh, BN sports show, which comes from Doha. And basically, throughout that allegation about Sturridge, much the same way that that that, uh, others were, I don't want to just single out Keys because I think Keys was was just reacting to other things,
2: other things that were,
1: (laughs) other things that were uh, being written. And Cross said, "You don't know uh, Daniel Sturridge if you believe that." Basically, (laughs) I've covered this guy with England, I've covered this guy with Chelsea, he with Liverpool. He is fighting; he's uh, desperate to get back on the pitch. But there was that. But so, reporters who actually cover these players know that. And they develop exactly. uh, an appreciation for, for the players of African descent. However, there are pundits that don't develop that and are paid to be shock jocks or whatever you want to whatever term you want to use in the UK that resort to these stereotypes, and then it seeps into the fan bases. That's a major problem for football. And I'm, I'm sorry see- we've gotten no. off on this topic, but it, it really is.
2: But it's something that I think is also quite important because there are a lot of young, prominent black players in the game at the moment. And Liverpool uh, and Spurs and uh, Man City have all... Got those guys becoming more and more prominent within the team. Look at the guy who scored the goal for City today. Look at the guy who's running the midfield for uh, Spurs. Look at—I think it was four uh, key Liverpool players, including Raheem Sterling, at one point, who were all from South London and, you know, not just white guys. So there's a lot to be said there as to what the perception is of all of these players. And especially for a team like Spurs, where Pochettino's come in and their their reputation is now over hard work and fitness. And that's something that we haven't seen before in this iteration of the Premier League. I just don't think we, we've spoken about any other side in the way we speak about this Pochettino-Spurs. Hmm.
0: Interesting. I mean, those two adjectives that you just applied also apply to Leicester, too. I'm just wondering if we should be kind of as you were hinting, doing a reset and really reevaluating how important fitness, hard work, willingness is to title winning teams, because this year, that seems to be the theme of the whole season. The teams that are willing to outwork the other ones are at the top of the
2: table right now. Good point. Good point. Although you would say the makeup of the Leicester side is a very different age and demographic to the yeah. one of this Spurs side, yeah, which there's... is why the analysis would fit differently. But fitness still stands there. Mm. Um, you know, although Jamie Vardy's work ethic, uh, you know, can't be called into question, you would say what most of people assume is Jamie Vardy's uh, motivation might be different say a, a deli alley or, or someone like that. But maybe that's just a false classist assumption from a middle class white guy who's too lazy to look further into it it
0: seems always dangerous when you start making assumptions about people's motivations better to just ask them about them and get them on record to tell you what motivates and, them
2: and get it and get a generic answer well uh,
0: from a Dre Beats advert. <laughs> yes, perhaps. But even if you get the generic answer, it probably isn't best to assume what the real motives are. Uh, gentlemen, let's talk about Spurs for a little bit. Uh, the There have been a lot of doubters with them, even as they've lingered in the top two for a couple of weeks now. Perhaps not as many doubters as Leicester had a month ago, but this overriding reputation of Spurs being a team that are going to fade away or find a way not to be real title contenders is something that a lot of people have found difficult to shake. Kartek, I'll start with you, and then I want Lawrence to answer this also. To what extent does that reputation linger with you as you evaluate this team?
1: As I evaluate it, uh, it doesn't. I I think the Spurs team is a legitimate title contender. Where I think it factors in is, for Leicester City, top of the table, still, in spite of today's loss, and two points clear of Spurs, and for Arsenal, who are third in the table and are trying to chase down Spurs, their North London rivals, they don't have the fear factor they would if there was Chelsea on that shirt or Manchester United on that shirt or Manchester city on that shirt. I think psychologically it impacts the opposition to those teams. But for me, it doesn't impact my analysis.
0: Lawrence, how about you? And the point that Kartik makes, to what extent do you think that the lack of a fear factor is going to be an issue for Tottenham over these next 12 rounds?
2: Uh, I, I personally don't think it's going to be uh, uh, too much of an issue because of the way that I think people are reshaping the way they see other sides in the Premier League. Hmm. So I, I think the fear factor, like I say, the fear factor comes from, um, and like an almost sort of bare faced honesty, if you like, of this, uh, Spurs side, which at times has seen them early on in the season perform in what looked like naive ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's where they got so many draws from, um, for me, for me at least. Uh, and I, I think that's changed because of the way that they've seen, uh, the effectiveness of Pochettino's system, mm-hmm. um, Although I think they're almost, they're almost seen as naive today against this Man City team. Again. Mm -hmm. And that would be the issue. So maybe, maybe you're right. There's no fear factor because they're seen as a naive side. But at the same time, the fear factor is that, if the Spurs team turn up and outwork you, then you're going to lose the game. Mm. So it's, it seems very sort of binary in that sense. Mm.
0: Some things that don't seem binary, Spurs, only two points off the top, best goal difference in the league, best defense in the league, and now with 47 goals have only been outscored by Manchester City and Leicester. Both those teams have scored 48 times this year. What do
2: you, what do you think of the way that Leicester's, uh, sorry, uh Tottenham's midfield is shaped? I'm really fascinated by the way that they've managed to accommodate all, uh you know, Eric Dier, Dembele... Uh, Ali in there and all those players come to their best because at the beginning of the season, you'd say that maybe Ali and Dembele and not dire so much, and maybe even Eriksen in this formation would be conflicting in that position. Mm. But actually, they've all been very complementary of each other, and all of them found space in that Man City midfield this afternoon, which allowed them to break forward in the way which ultimately pressed for the, the, the penalty and obviously the, the second goal.
0: Kartik, what do you think?
1: It's real interesting to see how Pochettino has been able to look at the assets of players, specific uh, qualities of players, and shape a midfield around him. Uh, not, not necessarily trying to cram people in a 4-4-2 or a 4-2-3-1. Uh, even though this kind of plays like a 4-2-3-1, it's very fluid in its movement. Eric Dyer's role in the midfield is very important as a linchpin, and it gives Dembele kind of a freer role, which he's really excelled at. But keep in mind, is the one guy who's kind of a holdover player from the Harry Redknapp years, that hasn't been weeded out of this. So he's uh, he's obviously uh, got got a real role to play. How he's able to accommodate Sun and uh, and, and Lamella at times, a uh, Nosferchodly on the wing, a guy like Erickson, giving him a, somewhat of a free role as well, and then uh, really kind of. You- Ryan Mason and Tom Carroll in spot do very effectively. Tom Carroll's a guy who keeps the ball moving. He's a lot like a Leon Britton was at Swansea for many years. And, and he's a really good player to have when you're trying to hold the ball late in games uh, and, and, and see out a game. And then Mason brings a little bit more of that—I uh, uh, hate to say it, Lawrence, since we just had a discussion about it, but a little bit about that that fitness and hard working in the mm-hmm. midfield. Not as technical as Carroll, but he, he fits a role as well. Bentelev as well. We haven't talked about him. So it's real interesting to see how he shaped this midfield. And I think he shaped the midfield around the personalities and the players' uh, attributes that he has, rather than trying to fit them into a system.
0: Mm-hmm. I think two keys that stand out for me is, one— Eric Dyer's ability to transition and really serve as an anchor in midfield that then allows for the second key, the positional versatility of Musa Dembele, Dele Ali, and Christian Eriksen. Um, Eriksen we think of as the creator at the top of that midfield, but he's a little bit different than Metsud Olsen in that he can still provide that creative presence if you start him on one of the flanks. Musa Dembele you can really deploy him anywhere in midfield. Same thing with Dele Ali, and what it allows in my mind, is a really fluid kind of traditional three man midfield where you have a ball winner, somebody that collects and plays the ball up to somebody who's then either making a run or is collecting the ball higher up the field. And I think those three guys kind of provide a lot of positional versatility to instill that three man dynamic. If you have a team like Manchester City where you might want to deploy that, that dynamic higher up, it works. Maybe against an Arsenal, you deploy that, uh, that tactic a little bit deeper because you want to focus on Metsuit Ults a little bit more. And maybe against other teams like hypothetically a Leicester, you want to focus on Riyad Mahrez a little bit more, so you shift it out towards a flank. The positional versatility of those three guys, while maintaining the anchor of Eric, Eric Dyer, I think really helps. And I think it also helps that players like Lamella and Son can play any of the three attacking roles as well as on either flank. I just think all that versatility really just develops a lot of kind of clubs that Mauricio Pochettino can pull out of his bag. And I, I think it's
2: amazing to watch. Yeah, mm, good point. But it, it, it's, it, it, you know, it's, it's very easy. I'm not saying it's very easy for you to say that, but it is very easy to just sort of say, well, they, they're just versatile. Um, <laughs> and, you know, they they are. But I think there are a lot of sides which have versatile midfields who don't make them fit well together. Right. They're versatile and complementary. Right, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good. And sometimes I think the same happens with Man City, which I think is what people are hoping Pep Guardiola will bring, which is a, a bit more structure in the first two thirds. Hmm. Well, everybody,
0: Kartik alluded to the name value some of these teams still carry on their chest as teams like Liverpool, Manchester United, Chelsea go out to the other teams in the league. Next segment of the show, we're going to talk about those three teams, and we're going to talk about West Ham too, a team that still has some faint top four aspirations. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk Podcast. When we last visited Germany, both Bayern and Dortmund were coming off rare nil-nil draws. You didn't think that would last, did you? On Sunday, Bayern raced back into the win column thanks to two goals from Robert Lewandowski with a late goal from Augsburg's Raul Bobadilla, providing the only blemish in a 3-1 win on the road. On Saturday, Dortmund had a tougher time but carried Henrik Mkhitaryan's 57th minute opener through the final whistle, winning at home against last place Hanover 1-0. Elsewhere, Bayern's win at Darmstadt combined with Hertha losing at Stuttgart leaves those teams tied for third, with Schalke's Friday loss at Mainz dropping the Blues two back of Germany's Champions League spots. In Spain, Real Madrid stayed unbeaten under Zinedine Zidane with two goals from Cristiano Ronaldo, leading the Merengues to a 4-2 win over visiting Athletic on Saturday. The victory temporarily vaulted El Real into second, a position they gave back when Atletico kept another clean sheet on Sunday, winning at Hetafe 1-0. That result was... Briefly moved Atlete tied for first in La Liga with Barcelona. But Barcelona, with the final match of the weekend, scored five goals in the second half against visiting Celta Vigo avenging their loss on the road 4-1 earlier this year with a 6-1 result. Barcelona, three clear at the top, still with a game in hand. In other news in La Liga, the story of Gary Neville took a turn for the positive. At home on Saturday against one of the worst teams in Spain, Valencia got their first league win since November, getting late goals from Alvaro Negredo and Denis Cherchev to defeat Espanyol 2-1. Players of the week, let's start with Kartik. I have to go with Daniel Sturridge, especially after we had such a
1: lengthy discussion about him and, and stereotypes about him earlier. But he, you know, when players come back from injury and from serious injuries and nagging injuries, it often takes them a week or two weeks or three weeks to work back in to a routine and to be playing at a high level. With Sturridge, he looked very good when he came on in the FA Cup game on Tuesday against, um, against West, West fantastic.
2: Ham. He and looked fantastic that, in that game. As part of the front three... That was, I'd say, Liverpool's most dangerous front three of the season: Origi, mm-hmm. Benteke, Sturridge. It's so unpredictable.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, Origi no, no, is a player that I think uh, Jurgen Klopp likes an awful lot and be a big part of his plans, if he can stay fit. And Sturridge uh, might have worked his way back in with, and then, and then, of course, today against Aston Villa, he just looked brilliant. There are very few players who have this quality around the world. Aryan Robin is a player um, I think of. Uh, Robon actually is how it's pronounced. Uh, but he's a player I think of that can come yeah. back from injury quickly and and, and, uh, and and turn it on. But most players can't. It takes them a game or two or three to get those fitness levels up and, and make an impact. But Sturridge really showed me a lot, both in the FA Cup midweek where Liverpool was eliminated on penalties and then this uh, game today against Villa.
0: Well, in a week that didn't have any standout obvious choices, uh, maybe Conte would have been one if his team hadn't been reduced to 10 men pretty early in the second half, I'm going to use my privilege to pick somebody that's kind of, I don't know, a hipster choice or somebody that I just want to shine some light on. Uh, Mark Noble from West Ham. Uh, he's going to be in the highlight reels this weekend for that equalizer he had at Carroll Road. Uh, Finishing a shot that you see most people put into the crowd, just really good technique on a ball coming out of the box that he put into the right side of the net from about 24-25 yards out. I think that gives us a good platform to talk about somebody that has been quietly one of the more sustaining, above-average players in the Premier League for some time. Mark Noble at various times has been overshadowed in West Ham's midfield by... you can. You can select a number of players, whether it be Dimitri Paye this year, Stuart Downing last year, even going back when the West Ham was going up and down. Going back to the Scott Parker days, Mark Noel has always been the consistent player. He's always been the smart player. He's always been the person that has accommodated the other bigger names in the midfield. And to me, that means he's always been slightly underappreciated. I just think when I, when I watch Mark Noble play that he's one of the more reliable players in that position in the whole league. And for somebody that's 28 years old, who was part of England's youth national teams, who now has been a regular at this level for seven or eight years, I just kind of scratch my head when I see somebody like Tom Cleverly has 13 caps for England or John Joe Shelby has six caps for England or, or Scott Parker even. I think he has something like 13 or yeah, I don't know. Caps. I
1: don't know why Mark Noble hasn't a, gotten a good look from England. I completely agree with that. In fact, I had this conversation with someone about 10 days ago, Rich, and I don't think it was you. I think it was someone else.
0: No, it wasn't me. Um but you, you look at Mark Noble, yeah, he does nothing great, but he also does nothing poorly, and he does almost everything above average, too. And I think on this occasion where he had a very important goal, it's a nice time to shine a light on him. So my player of the week is Mark Noble. Lawrence. Nice. Can I go Troy Deeney? You can, absolutely.
2: Go Troy Dini with a penalty and then uh, playing well this year in the game. One of my nominees, which I think was a really good nominee, but, uh, you know, just for almost welcoming to the Premier League, I'm going to go down the route of Imbula. Mm. What do you guys think?
0: I think that's great. You know, when he was bought... I sent a tweet to Kartik saying, you know, it's ironic that Stoke is buying a player that hasn't scored a goal in something like 18 months at that point. Exactly. Um, and he ended that streak with a very good finish. Uh, we're going to talk about Stoke next segment, but it was a very good result for Stoke this weekend, yep. getting a 3-1 win at Bournemouth. Uh, let's start with one that should be a pretty short conversation, guys. The one Sunday game we haven't talked about. Liverpool, 6-0 win at Villa Park. Lawrence, I'll ask you about the Liverpool side of this. This is Now, a hint at what Liverpool can do with their full complement of attackers. We saw their attacking three today was Coutinho, Sturge starting up top, and Firmino also completing that three. Uh, How indicative of of Liverpool's future is this? Obviously, they're not going to score six goals every time. But in contrast to some of the down performances we've seen over the last couple months from the Reds, this has to be a very encouraging output.
2: Yeah, good point. I, I would definitely go down the route of, with Liverpool of uh, that Klopp sort of said everything went right for Liverpool today. Um, and I, I'd be inclined to agree. I, you know, Villa just didn't put up any form of defence on this one for most of the goals. I think Liverpool found it quite easy. The good thing is, you know, obviously it's a confidence boost for Daniel Sturridge coming back, uh Taborigi be able to come on. I think there's a lot of good factors. And then obviously for Liverpool to keep a clean sheet, also fantastic. I, how much can you actually read from this game? very little because you know when you look at the statistics when you look at the way they're played out, you know Villa were at home and they barely put up anything on this,
0: but Liverpool is within three points of Manchester United at this point, so I don't know exactly what that means, but it is kind of a barometer. Manchester United is in fifth place, and for all the struggles Liverpool have been having, they're not that far out of touch from securing a place back in Europe. Uh, Kartik, I want to ask you about the other side of this coin, Aston Villa. You know, as far as their fight for survival is concerned, they didn't actually lose any ground this weekend. Uh, Newcastle lost. There's still eight, po- uh, Villa is still eight points from safety. So the real damage here, if there is damage, is going to be psychological. So how much psychological damage do you think was uh, dished out by Liverpool on Sunday?
1: Might be a fatal blow. It's difficult to come back from this when you're already in a position where you need to take up the remaining. 36 points that are on offer, right? Am I right? 36? You need to take maybe 22 points from that, uh, realistically, to stay up. 21, 22 points. uh, Hmm. So you don't have much margin for error. And it was just an absolutely lethal blow, I think, psychologically.
0: Let's go to a team that's dealing with their relegation battle markedly better. Sunderland. We've been talking about this on the show for the last couple of weeks. Sunderland put in very good performances against both Manchester City and to maybe a lesser extent against Liverpool, but they were very opportunistic at the end of that match at Anfield so it probably isn't a huge shock to us that Sunderland got a 2-1 result against Manchester United uh, moving them to 23 points only one point from safety at this point Kartik talk about the performance you saw from the Black Hats.
1: I really like what we're seeing uh uh Karziri Kar- Kar- who you would uh tip when he signed with Sunderland really good signing uh, what we saw from uh from Kone on the back line, has been uh, encouraging. Uh, D- Damon, Damian Doy, who's come in uh, from uh, from Turkey, has played mm. well uh, in kind of a, a, an unfamiliar role for him because I think when Allardyce signed him, he wanted him to, be, to play him centrally. And because Jermaine Defoe found form, he's found a way to work both those guys in. I really like the way Sunderland is playing. I, I have to say, there were times in this match at Old Trafford, they took the game to Manchester United. They seemed unafraid. Uh, DeAndre Yedlin, the American with the exception of, of, of uh, Martial's goal, had a pretty solid game, best game he might have had uh, as a Premier League player since uh, moving from MLS uh, two years ago. <laughs> he sure did
0: show England how fast he can be, Jeez. Yeah, Like yeah, four or yeah, five yeah. different times, he broke out from his right back position, carried the ball 20 or 30 yards, invariably lost it, but geez, he, he might be the fastest player in England.
1: He could be, and I think this is going to be an important thing Newcastle versus Sunderland, rivals eight miles apart, 10 miles apart, whatever the distance is. Sunderland has beaten them six successive times. They both managed to stay in the league the last couple of years. They both have been tipped this season for relegation. Sam Allardyce goes out during the January window, goes and buys four guys that are prominent from the continent uh, at, at pretty cut rate prices, right? Yeah. Because you find better bargains on the continent. Steve McLaren makes the decision to bring in Andros Townsend and John Joe Shelby. Both of which are decisions I question, to be perfectly honest with you, given how those guys had played at their previous clubs. And given that Townsend is the only guy that's an English, uh, English player that's got, gotten games for the England nationals that Pochettino just kind of discarded at Spurs. I think that's pretty telling for me, but they've decided to go with those two guys, spend a lot of, a lot more money on those two guys than Allardyce did on the four guys he bought from the continent. We're going to see who who gets relegated and who stays up. I think one of those teams is going to go down, and one of them is going to get relegated uh, is going to stay up. And right now, I I would give Sunderland the advantage.
0: Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about Newcastle. Newcastle, along with Aston Villa, uh, the two teams on the the wrong end of just embarrassing results. Newcastle losing 5-1 at Stamford Bridge. Uh, defensive errors and absent-mindedness leaving them d- down three goals at halftime. I want to just read the lead from Dominic Fiffeld's match report for the Guardian. I think it kind of sums it up because it also injects what you were talking about, Karthik, with their ja- Newcastle's January spending. It takes performances as pathetic as this to drain any optimism generated by a lavish mid-season outlay on attacking talent. Newcastle United looked a depressingly dysfunctional side here, a team devoid of defensive steel as they crumpled obligingly to present Goose Heenick with a first league win at home in his second spell as Chelsea's interim manager. Subsiding in these parts might normally not be cause for huge alarm but the champions have not been permitted to purr like this all season. Lawrence I I think that sums it up Uh, Newcastle made Chelsea look good and Chelsea might actually be good at this point we'll have to wait and see but they made Chelsea look better than any of us thought that Chelsea could look at this
2: point. I think Chelsea were just allowed to impose themselves on the game, uh, because of the, the formation that Newcastle played as well. Um, mm. I think they were slightly overawed. They didn't seem to, like you say, have much control of the midfield. And as much as they bought in John Joe Shelby to, um, to, to solidify things, I don't think they've found him a partner who's going to give him that sort of the, the solid partner he needs, if you like. Yeah. Check is not that right now. Um, I, and you know, for that reason, I think that they need uh, they need a bit more structure within the team. It uh, consistently when Newcastle don't play well, it's down to a poor structure and setup of the side.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Tiote had a very poor game. Shelby is a very distinct kind of player, and we saw in Shelby's first game against West Ham when he first got acquired. If you give him time, he can do damage. He can spray the ball uh, across the park, but if that skill isn't being beneficial on a day, he isn't really that much value to you as a team. Uh, exactly. Kartik, what were your impressions of Chelsea?
1: I thought Chelsea were very good. This is the first time I've seen Pedro look as rampant as he did uh, in his Barcelona days. And it was an interesting tweak to put Pedro in the team. Uh, Mikel was dropped to the bench. A little more openness from uh, from heating. Uh, possibly we knew how poor Newcastle were and how bad they'd be, but... Uh, uh, Very, very good signs from Chelsea these last few weeks. Diego Costa looks a new player. We talked about this (laughs) last week, Richard. I don't want to necessarily get into the conspiracy theories about him trying to get Mourinho sacked. And all those uh, speculations that that have come out, maybe just heating puts him in a better position uh, to score goals. Maybe heating is uh be, is better for him in training, and he's more motivated. But he looks right now as good as any striker in England, and then I'm including Harry Kane and and Jamie Vardy. And so Costa looks looks the same player he did two years ago at Letty. Really, the first time in his Chelsea career he has and. Uh, it was all good for them. But you, you have to keep in mind, Newcastle defensively is a disaster. And even though they went out and spent all this money in January, they did not do anything to shore up their uh, their, their defense. They did not go out and get a guy like uh, like Akone, a a defender that uh, Sunderland did, or, or Kirchhoff, who, who uh, if Allardyce is playing in the midfield but could play on the back line. They needed to get a player like that. They just uh, look so fragile. And I'm For the first time, I'm thinking Newcastle's going to go down.
0: Newcastle, to me, looked like a team that hadn't had a full-speed training session in a couple of weeks. They looked like a team that it took them half an hour to realize how hard the other team was going to play. And, you know, Dago Costa's finish for that first goal was a great finish. But everything that led up to that opportunity looked like one team playing at full speed against another team that maybe didn't stretch or something. I mean, it looked like something basic was wrong with the team. and Unfortunately, it led to a really lopsided result for the Magpies. Uh, one more match to talk about in this segment, Norwich 2, West Ham 2. Norwich getting goals from Robbie Brady, Wes Houlihan, then quickly responded to by Dimitri Payet and Mark Noble. Lawrence, I want to ask you just generally about West Ham because I think West Ham is a team that a lot of people haven't been able to get a good handle on, how good they actually are. We've seen them... You know, particularly early in the season, of road wins at Manchester United, Liverpool, um, Manchester City, I should say, Liverpool, and Arsenal. Liverpool three
2: times this season, yeah. yeah.
0: But then we also see like the first 65 minutes of this game, their performance against Newcastle a couple of weeks ago. There seems to be another side to West Ham that comes out every once in a while. So what's your reading on how good the Hammers actually are?
2: I think it's when they can't get the... Str- Again, it, I th- part of it comes down to structure for me. Um, as much as most people are laying them out as a sort of uh, weird 4 through 3 I think it's more like a 4 2 sort of thing. And I was talking to a couple mm. of guys about this over the last few weeks, and a lot of people struggle to um, struggle to see where a lot of opportunities come from without Dimitri Payet as part of the overall structure. So I think if you shut him down, generally you have a pretty good chance of sort of stifling a lot of their game. Um, I know that seems quite reductionist, but at, well, at times... But,
0: but this game, I mean, when Payet woke up after the second goal, he scored a goal, he helped create the second goal. That was a huge difference in this game. And I think a lot of West Ham fans will point to the last couple months where Dimitri Payet, after he came back from injury, hasn't been at his early season peak. And that maybe explains some of the inconsistency in West Ham.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I think it, it also comes down to the fact that When other midfields allow them to play the exact structure they want to play, then it works very well for West Ham. Outside of that, I think they, they can struggle. But the problem is that, you know, when other, you know, when other midfields uh, do play this kind of team, then they, they, it's very easy to break down a lot of midfield shapes at the moment in the Premier League. And I think when West Ham play well, they have a very good midfield structure and they tend to exploit the holes in the other sides. Um, this is what we found, though, against Norwich. I mean, if you look at that Norwich formation to kind of match that up, they almost played a four-four-one-one. I think uh-huh. at times that was very stifling to the way that uh, West Ham were looking to play.
0: Hmm. Well, we're going to take our last break right now. When we come back, we'll update you on the Championship, give you our top fours, and then talk about the other four matches in the twenty-sixth round in the Premier League. Stay with us. This is the World Soccer Talk podcast. Down to the championship, where Middlesbrough were poised to reclaim their lead at the top of the table, making up their game in hand on Tuesday at MK Dons. But in the face of a three-game winless streak, Itor Karanka's team failed to make significant progress, needing a 93rd-minute goal from Jordan Rhodes to claim a 1-1 draw. That result, however, meant Borough went into the weekend one point up on second-place Hull, a gap C Bruce's side closed on Saturday. With early second-half goals from Abel Hernandez and Mohamed Diame, Hall rebounded from last weekend's loss at Burnley to take a 2-0 win at Blackburn. With Middlesbrough facing a Monday match at Leeds, Hull is temporarily two points clear at the top, but the race for those two automatic promotion places continues to be a tight one. In third, Burnley are still within three points thanks to a 0-0 draw at Reading, while Brighton is now also three back after a 3-2 win over visiting Bolton gave them their fourth victory in a row. Further down, Sheffield Wednesday is 5th, unbeaten in 7 after a 4 nil win over visiting Brentford, while Derby's first match after firing Paul Clement ended in a one nil loss at home to MK Dons. The Rams are still holding onto that 6th place spot. Time for our top fours, everybody. I drew the short straw on this one, and I'm going to go for- first. Although, uh, in recent weeks, we haven't seen a lot of variation amongst these lists, so you might end up hearing these four over and over again amongst us. But uh on form... Uh, First, I have Tottenham, uh, five wins in a row, very convincing win this weekend. Uh, second, I have Leicester, even though they lost this weekend. I think we all know the circumstances behind that one and got to give them credit for the run they just went through. Southampton has won five of six, has the best defense in the league right now. I have them third. Arsenal, I think, is fourth on this list, but still playing very, very well. Um, most of the time this year, they would have been first on this list. <laughs> so many times we get to this list and we wonder if there are any form teams in the league. Right now we have a few. End of the season. I will go four to one here. Number four, Manchester City. Uh, I am starting to question whether Southampton has time to track them down. Although South, uh, Manchester City did play reasonably well this weekend against a tough opponent. Uh, number three, Arsenal. Number two, Spurs. I have Leicester number
2: one. Lawrence? Oh, I'm almost going to match you up team for team, aren't I? Yeah. And your logic as well. So what... I guess the only... The, I'm going to... My end of season will be different. Okay. I, I want to go Spurs top. Ooh. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. I think Spurs will ace it from here out due to improved mentality.
0: <laughs> Sounds good. Well, it's it's good that we're not all thinking exactly alike. Um, Kartik, your lists.
1: Yeah, I'm going to go the same uh, top... Well, similar top four on form. Southampton, Leicester, Spurs, Arsenal... End of season, I'm going Man City 4, and I want to point out that had Liverpool beaten Manchester United in the game, they should have won a couple weeks ago at Anfield, I think Liverpool could have chased down Manchester City. Instead, that six-point swing leaves a weaker Manchester United as the team chasing Manchester City. They won't catch them. So four Man City, three Arsenal, two Spurs, one Leicester, although I'm beginning to hedge on one and two, thinking maybe it's Spurs one, Leicester two, but one more week I'll go Leicester one, Spurs two. Mm -hmm.
0: Gentlemen, I, I don't think you'd be surprised to hear that right after the result on Sunday, I started getting tweets from Arsenal fans who uh, were were justified. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> they were justifiably happy with their team's results. Uh, I think it was Robbie Musto that pointed out that Arsenal still has to go to. Uh, I w- they still have to go to Spurs. They have to go to United. They have to go to Everton, and I believe they have to go still go to City. So yeah, they
1: uh, they still have to, they have to go to Manchester United next week, so they can yeah. get back the three points they got today. And uh, Leicester is playing West Brom at home. Hmm. Uh, probably it'll be four or five points at that point. Yeah. The
0: gap again. Uh, Arsenal will visit Manchester United on the 28th. Next week, we still have to figure out what to do with our shows next week. Just like any week where the Premier League is going to be off, we're going to have to think of some creative topics because we are a primarily Premier League show. We're still going to come to you with shows midweek and at the weekend. Uh, just this coming weekend, we won't be doing a Premier League show. And we'll probably only be kind of tipping our hats to the FA Cup. Gentlemen, four more games to talk about. Southampton, we've mentioned a couple times during the show. We just mentioned them in all of our form lists. They got a 1-0 victory at Swansea. Shane Long, 69th-minute goal, was the only scoring there. Uh, Southampton has the best defense in the league right now. They've won five of six. And I'll ask both of you guys this. The gap between Southampton and Manchester City is seven points. There are 12 rounds to go. Southampton is playing as well as any team in the league right now. Is there enough time for Southampton to track down Manchester City? Kartik? Oh,
1: well, there certainly is. And Manchester City have a ton of points they're going to drop the rest of the way. But I just wonder if Southampton were basing it on their recent form and not what we saw before that. And I, I, I just don't think they will track them down. Is there time? Yes. And as I said in the la- uh, just now, if Liverpool were sitting at that point where they should have been, if they had won that game against Manchester United, I think they probably would chase down uh, Manchester City. Now that Liverpool has got... Uh, fit storage, a fit Arigi, and an understanding of how Klopp wants them to play consistently from game to game. But Southampton, I think, maybe a bit too much to ask. They could finish fifth, though.
0: Mm-hmm. So let me just read down the fifth through eighth spots in the league right now to give people an indication of just how tight it is. Manchester United, on 41 points, is six points back of Manchester City for the league's final Champions League spot. Right behind them, with 40 points both Southampton and West Ham, and then only two points back of them, Liverpool. But Lawrence, I want to ask you the same question. Does Southampton mm-hmm. have enough time? And and just to note, re- very recently between Boxing Day and now, they've taken four points from Arsenal. So if there is a complaint as to whether they're taking advantage of a weak fixture list or not, they have the better of one of the league's title contenders during this span.
2: Yeah, no, it's a very good point. Uh, why would they not be able to... Track down a seven-point difference there. Um, I'd say the only difference is with Southampton is when you look back at their fixtures and some of the fixtures they've had more recently, they've been very narrow. Uh, so they got one nils, nil nils, nil yeah. nils, nil nils, and then the last thing they got was against West Brom, which I acknowledge is a hard team to break down. Um, the good thing that, and the difference again would be number of fixtures, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the number of fixtures and the difference between the two. If Man City are going towards the end of the season, they've obviously they've still got the final against Liverpool. Uh, they've also got the Champions League, which they may immediately go out of, but it's still that fixture management, which I imagine is going to be the difference. Mm, that's true. Yeah, and so I,
1: I should point out, I should point out Manchester City, uh, don't think about uh, August and September. If you take from this point uh from middle of September onward they' are no different than any of these other teams they're they're an eighth place team a seventh place team so maybe maybe as you you're talking about this you're convincing me
0: yeah and maybe that somewhat fortunate draw they got in Champions League I know Kartik that you've written about how uh, um Dimo Kiev is not going to be a pushover but it is still a better option than they than some, oh yeah, I mean yeah, they yeah. could have gotten PSG in that spot i I believe that was one of the options, right. but city is going to be the favorite in that matchup. Maybe they get the winner of Wolfsburg and Ghent in the next round and get a paved path to the Champions League semifinal, and maybe that actually comes back to haunt them a little bit. Maybe they then run into a Real Madrid, get eliminated, and find themselves in sixth place in the in Premier League well, thinking. this is
1: going to be sacrilege. This is going to be sacrilege to a lot of people because we know about the romance of the FA Cup. But there is a school of thought among Manchester City supporters to just, uh, since we drew Chelsea mm-hmm. in the fifth round at Stamford Bridge. Well, Pellegrini like, even that alluded go. to that in his quotes yeah, today. just Oh, did he? I didn't well, see he's, that. He, just, said,
0: he said that he needs to make some smart decisions in lieu of the fact that Europe is now coming up and they have a final and they have the FA Cup. He says he needs to make some smart decisions with his roster.
1: Yeah. So I, I, I'm expecting a youth squad to play against Chelsea, quite frankly.
0: Mm. Well, they had a pretty much a whole youth squad on the bench today. So maybe that's just a matter of one step up. <laughs> right. 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 Uh, gentlemen, let's talk about Stoke City versus Bournemouth three to one victory. This looks great on paper for Stoke City. It's, it's a great way to kind of stem this tide here. Carter, the one thing that really jumps out to me about this is that the shots were even 11 11. Stoke had the much better quality of shots, but the possession number is one that people that are hoping Stoke will evolve into Stoke Alona. Kind of defies 34% possession, and to me, this is what Stoke, this is how Stoke really should be playing. Not really trying to hold the ball, but trying to get their very talented p- people out on the break and into outnumbered situations where they can really take advantage of that talent gap between them and a team like Bournemouth.
1: At one-on-one situations, just like you've talked about with Leicester for weeks now. Leicester wins those one-on-one battles with every team in the league. Still can win those one-on-one battles with most of the leagues. So th- this was a, a smart way of playing. Bournemouth had so many chances in this game. I watched a lot of this game. It was really kind of the mo- more, most intriguing for me of the, uh, uh, of the 3 p.m. kickoffs. And Bournemouth uh, was wasteful. Their, their finishing was, uh, was suspect. And defensively, they still have some concerns when they get caught out that way. And when they're keeping the ball – We have seen Bournemouth adjust because Eddie Howe's teams in the championship and in League One, they kept the ball 66-34 is a usual possession number for them, 60-40. But we've seen some pragmatism from them this season when they played better teams, when they don't keep the ball defensively, they, they keep their shape. When they did have the ball in this game, their defensive shape was terrible.
0: Hmm. Yeah, kind of a letdown here for Eddie Howe's side. You would have to think before this game, he was hoping to get three points from this one, continue building that gap between his team and relegation, as is they end up losing at home. Lawrence, you haven't been on the show in a couple of weeks, so we haven't had our Tony Pulis defender here. So uh, I think we need a little bit of a balance because Kartik and I have gotten just more and more negative about West Brom. West Brom yeah. got a victory this weekend. It wasn't pretty at all, but it was the plan. Expected. Oh, um, <laughs> given the opposition, they were at Goodison, but it was the plan. Early goal, hold out, uh, use that defensive solidity that they work on so much to yeah. get three points and to, in that light, uh, probably deserve some credit.
2: Uh, yeah, although, you know, they obviously in that time, they also conceded a lot of shots. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, uh, 33. Know, but, uh, So it's not the defensive solidity maybe that we, uh, you know, in terms of shots created and chance creation, I I think they were fairly fortunate in that sense. Uh, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to try and defend what uh, Pulis is doing because I don't think I need to. Uh, (laughs) It's a tactic of sorts. Um, And, you know, as ugly as some people might call it, I still think, Um, it has its place in the Premier League.
0: Kartik, I want to get your thoughts on Everton in a second, but the the one thing I want to do is follow up on my comments earlier in the show when we were talking about Arsenal, and Arsenal using one, two touches to try to break down a bunkered-in Leicester team. We didn't see that with Everton, and it goes back to something we've been talking about throughout the year with Ross Barkley, to me, Ross Barkley has been one of the better midfielders in the year this this season, but we have talked to him about him maybe not fully developed as a tempo setter at this point, somebody that is like a Metsuit Ozil that can play the ball around quickly and force defenses to react quickly. Ross Barkley, to me, was the biggest example of somebody that when the ball was coming to him, he was taking too many touches, allowing West Brom to set up their defense and allowing West Brom to only react to the ball and not react to the players around the ball because it wasn't moving fast enough. And I think that's... Um, um, if Everton looks at this game, it'll be a good example of how they can improve. It's a good example of why Everton seems to falter against teams that let them have possession. And Everton seems to be so much better on the break. This is a game that Everton should have found a way to win. But Kartik in general, uh, I think a lot of people are going to look at this game as kind of a uh, an indicator of some of the problems in the Martinez era for the Toffees. To what extent do you, uh, do you read into that?
1: I-, I do because, again, I think they're taking too many touches on the ball. They're not... When they've got their chances, when they've got the daylight, you can't let that defense set, which is what happens when you play a Pueless team. So you have to be – there were a couple times where they had – where Barkley specifically, uh, you mentioned him, was in space, had had a, a player making a run, uh, could, could have created a, a one-on-one opportunity, could have, goal-scoring opportunity, and the ball was pulled back or too many touches were taken or the ball was played late or the wrong ball was played. So – This is part of having a plan B. This is part of understanding how to break down a bunkered side. Quite frankly, years of Martinez at Everton, we haven't seen him be able to do it yet with consistency.
0: Mm. And then the final match of the weekend, the, well, not the final match, but the one we haven't talked about yet. Uh, Troy Deeney's two goals earning him Lawrence's player of the week nod and their 2-1 victory at Selhurst Park over Crystal Palace. But Lawrence, I really want to talk about Crystal Palace here because we haven't spent a lot enough time really talking about what's going on right now with them. Palace, a team that was challenging top four, top five spots a couple months ago. Uh, they, well, they were there. Maybe they weren't challenging, but they were there. Um, now they're in thirteenth place and they're playing like a team that's more relegation standard. They can't remember the yeah. last time they actually won. What's going on with them right now?
2: I think it's. I mean, it, it's uh, partly the the structure of the front line and that they they seem a little bit blunted by the the fact they can't find very much shape uh, in the front. They brought in Adebayor and obviously he got the goal on the weekend. But you've got to be more consistent than that. And if you know the Premier League, you're more likely to, you're very likely to concede more than one goal. Mm. Um, uh, what I'm thinking is with uh, with Palace is basically, you know, we've warned about this. And I think we said it from the very beginning of the season. The way that Pardew motivates the players can sometimes, and always in the moment, is always lauded as this fantastic, you know, he's really getting the best out of them. But it, how much longevity is there? And, you know, you can compare that to Mourinho in a sense.
0: Well, in Palace's defense, they are playing without Yannick Bellassi, Yohan Kabaye, and James Punch, and as is this... This downturn in form has transcended a lot of those injuries. And I think a lot of people are asking is uh, Pardew, if Pardew is going through another one of his moments that we've seen in other spots. Midweek action this week focuses on Champions League. Of course, Europa League is Thursday. But between now and then, we are going to be coming to you with another show. On Tuesday, though, in Champions League, Chelsea travel, travels to Paris Saint-Germain. Big issue there is whether John Terry, who had to leave this weekend's game with a hamstring strain, is going to be able to play. If not, look for Cahill and Ivanovic to start in central defense there. Was, um, Baba Rahman being brought in at fullback for what is a very important game for them. Also on Tuesday, Zenit St. Petersburg visits Benfica. On Wednesday, Ghent versus Wolfsburg is one game. And then Roma, Luciano Spalletti, gets a visit from Real Madrid. We are going to be back with you midweek with another show, talking a little bit about Champions League. Looking forward to the week. In England, but until then, for everybody at the World Soccer Talk Podcast, I'm Richard Farley. For Lawrence McKenna, Kartik,
1: enjoy your football.
0: The World Soccer Talk Podcast is a production of World Soccer Talk and is executive produced by Christopher Harris and produced by Richard Farley. You can get the podcast a number of different ways, including Stitcher iTunes, TuneIn, SoundCloud and Audioboom or you can go to worldsoccertalk.com to download the show directly to get in touch with one of the hosts you can reach out to them on Twitter I'm Richard Farley, Kartik is KKFLA737 Lawrence is LOZCAST and Nipun is NipunChopura7 don't want to bother with Twitter? Go ahead and reach out via email, Richard at worldsoccertalk.com